Welcome to the Talking the Talk podcast, where we'll be exploring items of automotive technology and the design journey into mass production. I'm Kevin Reed, founder of the Ireland Made platform, where we celebrate stories of Irish transport, past and present, and this is our podcast. Very happy to welcome my co-host, automotive engineering consultant, Mike Keane. Mike develops sustainable transport solutions for industry and has extensive automotive career. Having previously worked for Williams Formula One in their advanced engineering division, has led projects for such as Ford, Nissan, Land Rover and Aston Martin. And what is most impressive for me, he worked on the baddies car for the James Bond movie Spectre, the Jaguar CX-75. In our exploration of the origins of automotive technology, in each episode we're going to discuss cars that range from the 1921 German Rumpler right up to what Tesla and Lucid are doing today. In our first episode, we spoke about aerodynamics. And in this, our second episode of Talking the Talk, we're talking about the origins of automotive styling and how they influence mass production. Hi, Mike. Good to see you again. Hi, Kevin. Good to see you too. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, last uh, time we talked about aerodynamics and we, we occasionally touched on some of the times where aerodynamics and styling crossed over, um, like detail optimization. But today then we're just going to look at styling influences and, and how that changed over the course of um, automotive um, development. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. The first influences, tell us about those. Yeah, so the first influences were very much from horse-drawn carriages. Um, so at the point where cars were really first seen on the road, it sort of um, started in the 1900s. At that stage, horse-drawn carriages had hundreds of years of development and had quite a lot of style gone into them. So as you can imagine, those first cars, they just mimic those styles. Um, we see things like um, pram style retractable roofs. We see the plush padded leather seats. Um, the splash guards over, the, over the, the wheels were very like those you would have seen on horse-drawn carriages. The wheels themselves with, with the wooden spokes and then lots of metal, you know, lots of polished brass fittings. Um, if you take a car like the 1903 Ford Model A, it's remarkably like a horse-drawn carriage. And the other thing as well is that they were very short. The first cars were very, very short, very short wheelbase, very high. And then again, mimicked horse-drawn carriages very early on. Hmm. So you were sitting high off the ground to keep you away from the mud on the road and various things like that. So that would have been the start of the styling. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And then as you know, as with all the other technologies, you can think of styling as being a technological development within cars. And as with the other technologies, it was really after World War One that, um, that it started to really come into its uh, come into a, uh, its own. Um, at that stage, so cars were still really commodities owned by the more affluent or you know the upwardly mobile, but they st- and they started to become real status symbols, and so. The styling then started to deliberately cult images, uh, cultivate images, I should say, um, that suited the marketing purposes. So um, they started deliberately making cars that, you know, had a, a sense of desirability or, um, or affluence or sex appeal or modernity or muscle. It was all of these things. They start trying to sell this in the, into the car. Um, and as well, at the same time, we see market segmentation happening more and more. So cars were, were rather than be a one size fits all, you had cars designed for different purposes and the styling then would, would, would tie into that. So to 
cards at opposite opposite ends of the spectrum, both high value cards, both bought by um, you know affluent owners, would have been the Bugatti Type Thirty Five, which designed for racing but was sold on the road, um, and the Duesenberg Model J, again, which was which is a luxury touring vehicle. Um, so only affluent owners would have bought those, but they're very different styles at this stage. Yeah, I'm even thinking the do du- the Duesenberg was it's like a barge. It's a huge, Absolutely. huge. Yeah, yeah. If you need to cross a continent in a day, that's the car you'd go for. That's right. So the twenties then saw the style of I mean, do we call them at this stage coach builders? They, is that where the phrase begins? Yeah, we see coach builders come in now. So um, up until this point, cars were always designed in house by the car companies, and then we start seeing external companies called coach builders coming in. So these companies would design the bodywork and build bodywork um, onto the onto the vehicle. And it worked very well because at that point in time, the construction of the vehicle was that the, the body was bolted onto the chassis. So yeah. the chassis was a separate component. So it meant that these companies could take a chassis, you know, in some cases, take off the original bodywork and rebuild and restyle the bodywork on, um, on top of these. But by its very nature, it was a sort of a, it was a limited it was a limited life um, span for these companies because as cars went from having a body on chassis construction into unibody and into monocoque, suddenly um, that ability to be able to separate the, the body design from the chassis was was deleted. And today we still have coach building, but we tend mm-hmm. to see it in, in buses and coaches. Right. So if you think yeah. of the, the body of the coach on the chassis. Right. So clear reference to the horse-drawn days. And then moving on, then that led us up to around, I suppose, the 1920s to much smaller cars. So take us through that. Yeah. we So, you know, up until that point, cars were owned by the affluent and we start seeing cars designed um, and deliberately sold towards people um, with less wealth. Um, they tended to be smaller cars. And then sort of post the Great Depression in particular, there's a, there's a rejection of the opulence that happened in the 1920s. Um, and that's, that's mimicking the cars. Cars like the, in the States, in the United States, the Ford Model A, or in Europe, the, the Austin 7, they're very simply designed, very simply styled. Um, it, it's a rejection of the opulence, but, it, but it's, also, it's also just a functional thing. So they were much cheaper to make, right? And they had to be cheaper to make in, in order to, um, to meet those lower costs, um, those sale prices. Through the 30s, then there isn't that much development really. Sorry, through the, the late 30s and 40s, isn't that much development um, because the war stopped production for most car companies. And we see that after the war, then they kind of picked up where they left off. Yeah. So the styling and the styling really kicked off in the 50s. And immediately I'm thinking of big fins in American cars. Should I be thinking of anything else? Yeah. So for me, there's two words in the 50s, two unrelated words that I always think of. <clears throat> Space and Italians, right? <laughs> Sounds like a, yeah, and that for me, that, that defines sort of where styling started to go in the 1950s. Um, if we look at space, so you, you, you rightly say, so, so the, the big fins that we see at the back. Um, the space race, you know, you can think about Sputnik launching in 57, but actually the aesthetic of space was happening all through the 50s. Um, it was a very popular topic in, you know, popular fiction and modern in, in, you know, popular culture, and it was definitely influencing car design, particularly in the United States. So we start seeing these big fins, as you see at the back. We see um, lights at the rear that look like the um, the jet stream from um, from exhaust. We see sort of 
sort of these protrusions at the front that look a little bit like the front of a torpedo on the bumper. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other thing we see was a lot of glass. So there was a kind of a, an idea of, you know, the, the um, sp- in space, you have these large um, glass house spaceships. Um, if you look at a car like the Cadillac Coupe de Ville, you know, it's a huge car. There's a lot of real estate there. And it's absolutely festooned with sort of all of these features here. Yeah, so it, it, it bred every childhood that your your parents' car reminded you, your little spaceship you're playing and all of that. Excellent. Yes, exactly. so, <clears throat> was there a separation then that obviously I'm answering my own question, the design styles between the US and Europe, very separate. Yeah, they, 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 you know, through the 50s, we start to see that separation more and more. Um, there is There is some commonality and there is some crossover particularly for car for American car companies that had a subsidiary or a sub-brand in Europe. So if you think of Ford, so Ford obviously, you know, have um, subsidiaries all around the world. And cars like in the 50s, the Ford Zephyr or the Anglia, um, they very much mimic the 1950s Fords coming out of the States. Um, and again, Vauxhall, so a British brand, it's a sub-brand of General Motors. And in the 1950s, their cars like the um, the Cresta and the Velox, you know, there's there's really obvious influences from the United States. Often the features are there, like the space features are there, but they're they're a lot more subdued on the um, subdued on the European cars. So they're they're they're, they're toned down somewhat. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Now, interestingly for me, U.S. style, as I understand it, also heavily influenced Australian cars, so the whole way around the world. Yeah. Again, and for similar reasons, actually, Kevin. So. Again, if you think of the, the two big manufacturers in uh, Australia, Holden and Ford, both actually um, American-owned companies. Um, so although actually technically Ford of Australia is owned by Ford of Canada. That's, a, that's an aside, yeah. As um, Michael Caine would say, not a lot of people know that. That's yeah. right, yeah, it's a slightly uh, odd, uh, odd arrangement. But um, so Holden, a General Motors uh, company, um, Initially, they started just doing what were called knockdown kits. So cars were built, they were assembled in Australia, having been shipped over. And in the 1950s, they started um, producing their own designs. And Ford started doing the same a little bit later, sort of towards the late 50s into the early 60s. But the influence is very clearly coming from coming from the US. And you can start, you can see real sort of family resemblances throughout um, throughout these companies. So within the GM family, within the General Motors family. You know, if if you take the late '60s, you've got something like the uh, the Holden Monaro GTS, wow. the Chevrolet Nova Coupe, and in Germany the Opel Commodore Coupe. And if you put those cars side by side, there's a real clear family resemblance uh, across all those cars. Yeah. Um, I, I quite like actually when you you see it, an individual feature has migrated across. So, can, can again, you give an example? Yeah, right. So, so stick with General Motors. This is one of my it's one of my favorites. Uh, I think because I always like the cars in Europe. But um, the nineteen sixties and seventies Chevrolet, so the Corvair, the Corvette, the Impala. One of their design features was that the rear lights were individual round lights mounted side by side on the rear tail panel. Okay. Yeah. And that exact same feature then was used on a number of Opals in the late 70s or early 70s. So the Manta and the GT most obviously. And I love that because it's it's just this one small design feature that's that's migrated across. Oh, yeah. Thank you for educating me. Now, educate me further because you've taken us through the science. Now take us through the Italians. 
Yeah, right. So why did I say Italians? So um, we talked a moment ago about the coach builders and sort of the, the external companies doing that work. And then through the 40s, um, you know, that was gone, had really gone back in-house. Now, car companies around the world, they have their own internal design teams. But what we start to see in the 1950s is um, the growth and really the prominence of design houses that are external to the car companies and really all from Italy. Italy absolutely led the way on this from the 50s through to the 1980s. Um, myriad companies, companies like Zagato, Pininfarina, Bertone, Ghia, Tal Design, um, um, Vignale, um, all operating out of northern Italy, usually around the Turin area. And they became you know, almost as famous as the car companies themselves. It's interesting you say some of those names because as a young fella, I always thought that like when I heard Zagato, it was part of the brand. Like that was Aston Martin. They did a lot of Aston Martins. That's right. Yeah. I just thought that it was, I didn't realize they were a separate coach builder until I came into my, my teens. Now, was it only Italian car companies that utilized? No. Nope. So you've just said Aston Martin. Right? So it's a really good, a really good example. Right. So um, they were obviously linked to the car companies, you know, so Fiat, Ferrari, Lancia. They, they had strong links on those, um, but they operated globally, um, particularly in Europe. Um, the company, the car, the design company that was most readily associated with non-Italian car companies is probably Pininfarina mm. or Farina as it was known up to 61. So if you take the British Motor Corporation, so BMC in the 1960s, nearly all of their range of cars was designed by, by Farina to the extent where, um, so if you take one model, the Austin A55 Cambridge, that was often referred to as the A55 Farina to, to separate it from the previous in-house design. Right. So for the purposes of what we're here today, you're going to have to describe the styling influences of that style. Yeah, right. So 1950s, very roundy shapes, right? So think of, think of in Europe, Morris Miners, Volkswagen Beatles. In the 1960s, then, you know, Farina probably led the way with a much sleeker design. So not quite straight lines, but very, very shallow curves, you know, so almost to the point where people would think of them as straight lines. Um, single continuous lines running from the headlight all the way to the, to the tail on the side of the car. We have those tail fins we talked about earlier on, and what you often get is a very slight up, up sweep on the tail fin and a very slight down sweep on a, on a midline that runs along the waist. And that sort of gives this, this impression of motion of moving forward. So if you look at these cars from the side, you know, three box design, but, but there's, there's a very strong sense of moving forward. So they were very much about sort of modern 1960s, moving away from 1950s conservative design. And then what would often happen is companies would sell the design to, sorry, design companies would sell the design to multiple car companies who were unrelated. So a moment ago, I talked about um, General Motors with the Holden and the Chevy and the Opel Commodore. Now they're all within the one family. Um, and they look familiar, so you can understand that. But if you take, again, Farina, so they would have sold that Farina design um, to, if you take a car like the Austin A55 that I mentioned, or the Morris Oxford from the BMC family, if you look at the Peugeot 404, or you look at the Lancia Feminia, completely different companies, no, no link with the car company, but actually those cars look very similar. And that's because Farina have, designed, have sold that same design multiple times to those car companies. The design cues stretch across. Very good. Mm -hmm. So educate, educate me then. 
do car companies not have their internal teams for doing all of this? Why go external? They did. They did have. Uh, they did have inter- uh, internal teams. It gives you an exact. It gives you an idea of just the regard that these external teams were held in, because when they were um, tendering for contracts, they were um, they were often in competition with an internal design team. So, what would typically happen? So, there's the sort of two approaches to how these design companies work. One was that they would tender for a contract. They were asked by the car company to tender for a contract. The other is that they would create their own version of the car. So they take a production car and they would create a concept and they would offer it back to the car company. Um, so one of the things that came out of that then is there's was, there was quite a lot of concept cars were created in the 60s, 70s, 80s that never made production. So these were concept cars, the design company, design houses created, offered to the car company, but they weren't actually used. All right. So give us an example. Um, the Lancia Fulvia, one of my favorite cars, actually. Um, so the Lancia Fulvia Coupe was designed in-house. Beautiful, really pretty little car. At the same time as it had been designed in-house and went to production with its in-house design, Lancia asked Zagato, would they create another design that was um, that had improved aerodynamics and was a little bit sportier? So Lancia then uh, took the chassis took the, the underpinnings of the Fulvia and they created a car that on the outside is quite different to the, the standard Fulvia Coupe. Um, it's very typical of, um, of what Ercole Spada was doing at Zagato at the time. Um, and that car then was created in a smaller production number and was sold by Lancia in parallel to the production company and oh. sold as the sport model. Um, Spada... <clears throat> Spada was chief designer at, at Zagato. Um, you can kind of recognize, I mean, you mentioned the Aston Martin DB, uh, DBs. So you, you can always, always recognize Zagato's style. So they tend to be um, uncluttered. So they tend to remove a lot of the body trim. And the other thing I always think you can recognize is Zagato's style is um, the features around the headlights are always very heavy. So often the headlights become set back into the bodywork and, and they're... Um, and they're cowled over. Um, so, you know, it really, really stands out. Um, and if I can just actually hold on to the, the, the full view for a moment. Okay. You remember in the last conversation, Kevin, we talked about the comeback effect on in, um, that's right, in aerodynamics. So that's where you have this very vertical cutoff of the rear. And it was in aerodynamics associated with the teardrop shape. What you start seeing then is designers start using the, the vertical cutoff, that design style, even if they're not actually incorporating the teardrop shape. And the Fulvia is a really good example of that. So it doesn't, it, it doesn't have a, a teardrop type coupe, but has a very, very sharp um, cam back at the rear. And, and you see this, you know, you see it happen over and over again in cars that are really quite a long way away from the, from the, the teardrop um, design. So the Triumph range, Pretty much every Triumph from the 1960s on um, has it. So the Herald, the Dolomite, the 2000, you see this very sharp um, um, cut-off vertical rear panel. And all of those Triumphs were actually all designed by Giovanni Michelotti, again, another Italian designer. All right. So you've mentioned um, Giovanni uh, Michelotti and Ecole Spada. Are the designers as well known as a design house? Does it, Do the names flow out? Yeah, that's, yeah, they do. Um, so 
in the earlier days of engineering cars, the chief engineer's name was often well known. Um, so people like Alec Sigan is um, very well known in BMC, designed the Mini, designed the Morris Minor. Um, by the 60s, the complexity of car design, um, the multidisciplinary approach of car design meant that the chief engineer was far less well known, yeah. but actually not so in styling. So in the styling houses, whether it's internal or external, the, the name of the chief designer is actually very well known. And I think it, I think it kind of comes around because in design houses, there's still a very much a sort of a, a master apprentice type approach mm-hmm. um, where, you know, the opinion of the chief designer is, you know, is paramount. The chief designer often sets the core design um, um, going and the core development going. Um, and also because, um, because, you know, there are technical principles, but it's, it's also a subjective. Uh, you know, it's a creative subjective approach as well. So it's very much a, it's very much an approach whereby that master designer, that chief designer has learned their trade, has proven their trade, and therefore their name becomes quite well known. Okay, so could you quickly take us through the names that are famous? Lots of lots of Italians. Um, so Accoli, Spada, Leonardo Fioravanti, who had designed a lot of um, well-known Ferraris in the 80s, uh, Giovanni Michelotti. Um, in more recent days, designs have tended to come back in-house, sort of from the 90s, from the 80s, 90s onwards. And now we start seeing um, we start seeing chief designers who are internal start coming to the fore. So Shiro Nakamura in Nissan, Frank Stevenson in Callum, Chris Bangle. So all these names are very well known in uh, in automotive design. Mm. Probably the name that's the arguably the most famous of all is Giorgetto Giugiaro. Um, he had a remarkable career. He designed for Bertone, for Ghia, and for Ital Design. So Ital Design is a company that he co-founded himself. He's got over 150 cars, um, you know, accredited to him. And, um, you know, some of the most prominent cars and some of the, you know, some of the most iconic designs all to him. So the Alfa Romeo Giulia from the 60s, the Mark I Golf, the Mark I Sirocco we spoke about in, um, in the aerodynamics uh, conversation, um, Fiat Panda, DeLorean, Lotus Esprit, oh, can keep going. Just, you know, a remarkable career. Um, design motorbikes as well, design cameras for, for Nikon, in fact. All right, well, I'm, I'm admiring him already because of the DeLorean. Um, interestingly, the, that he designed cameras. So very quickly, what were the other influences for designs that he came up with outside of cars? Yeah, so... Yeah, that's a good a good point. So if you think of um, so design is a subjective approach. Hmm. So all designers, it doesn't matter what um, what area they are in, they are looking at influences from all around them. They're looking at areas from other design principles. Yeah. Um, and one area um, that we see in cars, not not very prominent, but we can we can pick it out, is the German Bauhaus design. So Bauhaus is an architectural approach. Um, actually, you know, started in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. The principle of Bauhaus is that the is that the form follows the function, so that the design has a minimal input. There's as little input in the design as possible. And Butzi Porsche was the grandson of Ferdinand Porsche, who founded mm-hmm. the, the Porsche company. He had been a student of the own school of design in Germany, um, where he studied the Bauhaus principle, and he designed the original 911. So if you think of that original 911, very, very pure lines, 
very, very simple, simple lines. Um, and again, Audi referenced the Bauhaus principle for the TT and for the remarkable A2. I say remarkable because it's a car people often forget about and it's remarkable for many reasons, styling, construction materials. But mm. yeah, so Audi referenced Bauhaus in, in those cars as well. So we're in the 90s, we're getting closer to today. What are we starting to see? Yeah, big thing we see is retro design. Um, I think the car that, that kicked it off for me is the, the Mazda MX-5 or yeah. Miata or Unos, depends on which jurisdiction it was sold in. Um, so Mazda it took design lead massively took design lead from the 1960s Lotus um, Elan um, and they did, a, they did a really good job. I mean, it's a beautifully proportioned car. It's retro, but it's not kitsch. Um, and you can tell that by the fact that if you look at a Mark one MX-5 today, it still looks good and still looks, it looks right for the 1990s. Um, and it, I mean, it certainly helped that, you know, it's one of the best handling cars ever as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was Mazda um, looking back to Lotus, looking to another company, what started to happen then is car companies started to look back into their own back catalogue um, and started to think, well, they could reproduce iconic cars or iconic designs, do a modern interpretation, a modern retro interpretation of them and release uh, uh, release another version of them. So I'm thinking immediately the Beetle, the new Beetle, um, Fiat 500. The yeah, many, exactly. You know, of, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, the per- that, in fact, actually, they're the, they're the perfect tree, Kev, that, you know, for me, they they really um, are the cornerstones of this design principle. So um, the new Mini, the Beetle and the 500. Um, so interestingly, actually, the Mini and the Fiat 500 were both designed by Frank Stevenson. Hmm. So, um, you know, he's, that's a that's quite an achievement to be able to say in terms of, you know, his, his influence on design. And the 500, it's, it's actually, it's a very good example of how, good design um, can not only influence the car, but can actually change the, the fortunes of the company. Mm. So the Fiat 500 came out in 2007. By the mid-2000s, Fiat were not in a great place. Um, market share was something like 5% um, in Europe. Um, the product range was, was not great. It wasn't a very strong range. They needed something that was going to refresh that line. They needed a new product but they didn't have much development funding for it. So Stevenson and his team took the platform that the Panda was on, which is a pretty utilitarian car. And that's what they used to develop the 500 design on it. And they launched the 500 in 2007. And within two years, um, Fiat's European market share had doubled just based on that car alone. On that car alone, my goodness. So you've taken us through, you mentioned like named up like Frank Stevenson who designed the Mini, Mini and the Fiat 500. What is the importance of the designer? Yeah. So again, so the so the designer, if you think the designers, um, and this is where this this master apprenticeship, and you can see the important design coming in. So, they, so if you have a designer whose principles are light and is able to push designs um, into new places, so that the buying public likes them but hasn't seen them before, then mm. they, you know then they can really achieve some really good stuff. Um, if you think about Ian Callum, I mentioned him a few moments ago. So yeah. Ian is arguably one of the best known designers that's currently active. Um, started at Ford, went to Aston Martin, where he designed the DP7, then became um, director of design at Jaguar Cars. Interestingly, actually, he double jobs for a while on Aston Martin and Jaguar. But oh. then he became sort of, let's say, full-time design director at Jaguar. And 
in sort of when when he joined um, Jaguar at that point, Jaguar was stuck with a bit of an old fashioned conservative stodgy image, you know, selling to an mm. older clientele and, and sort of they, they were trying to break out of that. And, um, you know, old fashioned, not retro, right? You know, there's a difference, right? Sort of not cool. Yeah. Um, Callum took that, um, he took that design. He very much reinvigorated the whole of design principle for what Jaguar were doing. He started to make designs that were cool, they were sort of muscular, much more modern. And and pitched the company at a much younger clientele, and it really started to change the fortunes of um, of the Jaguar cars company. And he designed the Jaguar CX75, which you worked on. That's right, he did. Um, the CX75 was designed just originally as a concept car. It was shown at um, <clears throat> Paris, the 2010 motor show. It got such a good reception that Jaguar decided they would go to production with it, and they asked um, Williams Advanced Engineering. Um, to partner up uh, on the development of that. Um, I was a propulsion system lead engineer on the first prototype, and then I was lead designer on the second prototype phase. Jaguar decided that they wouldn't go as far as production with the car um, while it was in a prototype um, um, phase, build phase. Um, But then two years later, Eon Productions partnered with Jaguar Land Rover for JLR to um, supply a number of the um, supporting vehicles for the James Bond movie Spectre and they chose the CX-75 as the, the villain's car in that so uh, whereas the first car was a um, carbon fibre monocoque um, hypercar um, Jaguar then asked Williams would they redesign that car so on the exterior it looks the same but it's um, it's a it's a stunt car it's you know it's able to drive down the steps of the Traviata fountain and, and drop itself into the river in, in Rome. Right? But but do it in a very, very cool way. <laughs> in a very cool way. So the, the CX-75 was a petrol-electric hybrid. That's what right. effect has the move to electric vehicles made on styling? Because this is yeah. a whole different way of looking at things. Yeah, that's right. Um, you remember when we talked about aerodynamics, we talked about that synergy between uh, the need to reduce um, resistance or so aerodynamic resistance and the styling. So one of the obvious things we see is sort of the front of the car. I think everyone would recognize that electric vehicles, you know, there's a different front on an electric vehicle. Yeah, yeah there's a, a closed in grill. So, yeah. And that's because of that reduced need for um, for heat rejection. So therefore reduced need for for um, uh, a grill opening. But also that, that needs to reduce um, aerodynamic resistance tends to create very uncluttered designs Mm. Um, very you know very simple sleek and stylish but very simple designs and i'm thinking immediately of tesla i think the model three good example of that yeah absolutely yeah so the tesla i I think i think what for me what tesla did very well is that they they bridged the gap from where um the designs of petrol engine cars were at the time into um EV and they made um, they made it, the, the design sort of acceptable to the public. So they created these stylish designs, not not revolutionary, but I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean you know they were they were a, a natural stepping stone. They weren't seen as being very unusual. In fact, um, Franz von Holzhausen is the chief designer of Tesla. He had been the chief designer of Mazda. I always think that if you look at the Model S and you look at the Mazda Six, I think you can see a lot of design cues between those so mm. it was just a very good jo- job of sort of bridging that 
you know, bridging across from one to the other. And the fact that the public accepted it, because in episode one, we were talking about how the public didn't accept the Sierra. In fact, some people thought it was a jelly mold and it was too much of an advance. So what you're saying is these designers have made the jump acceptable to the public. Yeah. yeah and, I, and I think, you know, you talked earlier on about, you know, um, the role or the importance of the designer. So that's really what the designer is doing. Right. So if you think the designer is always trying to push the design into a place that the public has not seen before. Yeah. Right? Because it's trying to create something new to draw in the public. But, you know, knowing how far you can push that is the key. Right? And I think probably this year, okay. yeah. a little bit too far. So just taking this further than electric motors are smaller than petrol engines. How has this changed design? Because we're you have more more space to play with. Yeah, right. So the platform is different now, an electric car to a, to a petrol car. Um, so you see some electric cars out there that have been designed for a common platform. So the likes of the Golf, the likes of um, Hyundai's first version of the Ionic. When the car is then designed specifically for an electric platform, we start seeing you know, more significant design changes coming through. Um, the motor, the volume of the electric motors is smaller than the volume of the engine. So that means there's a lot more space at the front of the vehicle. But at the same time, the batteries are usually packaged in the floor of the vehicle, which raises the, the seat, raises what's called the hitch point or the hit point, raises it and then raises the roof line. And if you look at a car like the Jaguar I-Pace, again, an Ian Callum design, you look at the side profile of that, the, the cab is very far forward, right? So the, the, the windscreen line, the, the occupant area is very far forward in the cab. Mm. And the roof line is a little bit higher than you would expect normally. So we're starting to see these um, designs specifically for the EV platform, um, but they've got their own um, they've got their own influences that that the the EV platform is putting onto the onto the exterior design. Yeah, so very basically put, without the engine, the passengers can sit further forward. You can have a smaller, essentially engine area or, or, or yeah, that's right. Very good. Yeah. So they've started a trend, and we can see that in many other vehicles now. Yeah, that's right. Um, and you know, I think. You know, if you look at companies like Kia and Hyundai, I think electric cars and the design of electric cars has really transformed those companies. Um, so you take the likes of the, you know, the latest they are on like five. Um, it's right at the forefront of design and it's right up there with, you know, um, legacy players like Volkswagen or mm -hmm. new players like Tesla and Lucid, you know, and the, all of these cars, they're all creating cars now that are designed for EV designed in conjunction with the EV platform, not trying to, to carry over um, an IC variant of the platform as well. And these new designs are, you know, very modern, very stylish. And I, you know, I think they're starting to make the IC cars almost look a little bit dated. Now, when you say IC for the general public, that means? Internal combustion. Internal combustion. You can't get rid of the engineer in you. That's no. fair. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for picking up. It's the, the engineer's jargon. Engineer's jargon. Very interesting, Mike. Thank you so much for today. Um, hope you enjoyed that, folks. So that was um, styling. Uh, we've covered aerodynamics. Now we've covered styling today. In our next episode, we're going to cover cooling. We hope you can join us then. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the Talking the Talk podcast. My thanks to Mike Keane for the interesting conversation. You can check out Mike's offering on www.mikekeane.ie. That's K-E-A-N-E. And check out www.irelandmay.ie to see our back catalogue of stories on Irish transport, past and present. 
We look forward to welcoming you to our next episode, where we'll once again be exploring the origins of automotive technology. Please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about it. Bye for now.